Hey everybody, welcome back to the Horror Lab, where we dissect the best in horror movies each and every week. I'm one of your co-hosts, Will, and alongside me I've got my co-host, Chris. And uh, we are jumping into our 15th episode. I feel like every episode that we publish gets us a little further into like the top 100 category, if only because by like process of elimination. So if 75% don't make it to 10 per, to ten episodes and 83% don't make it to 20, we are just chugging along. We're hitting that high percentile. So we are, we're excited. As you know, last uh, episode, we, were, we did a part one of The Exorcist. Obviously, we're going to do part two today. In the previous episode, we covered a lot of the lore surrounding the movie. We talked about uh, just some of the backstory. We talked about uh, some of the controversy surrounding the movie, the marketing surrounding the movie. Uh, and this time, we're actually going to dive into the movie itself. So uh, spoiler alerts are abound from start to finish. As we always say, if you've not seen The Exorcist, one, crawl out from under the rock that you're living in. There's beautiful sunlight outside. Actually, it's cloudy over here. So, But welcome to the rest of the world. <laughs> and uh, definitely give it a watch. Again, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, I can't imagine that you've not seen it. But if you haven't, that's okay. Give it a watch. It's on HBO Max. Super worth it. If for nothing else than to say that you've seen the scariest movie in the history of scary movies. And that's it. So hit pause. Watch it. Come back. Give us a listen. Part one, part two. And we'll do a deep dive today into movie themes, different ideas regarding faith and doubt. Chris and I were talking and um, before we hit record, and I had mentioned in the previous episode that I was sort of came upon this comment that The Exorcist is loosely based on a real life case, you know, the exorcism of Roland Doe. At that point, while I was just sort of doing a grab bag of, you know, notes I felt like there wasn't a whole lot of information on that that real life story. Turns out there is. So I was wrong. Could you just let them know just how you do your research? Because I was a little shocked when you told me. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what I was doing. I th- I think what I what I was doing was like looking looking at like a grab bag. So like I typed into Google um, backstory of The Exorcist or like just little things. And I wasn't really looking for anything in particular. I was just looking for like little tidbits of information. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, oh, that's cool. And then I typed in something else and it came up with this like, well, there's there's multiple pseudonyms or like n- names that were given for the for the boy. Like they never revealed the, the individual's real name. And so like, I think I got disinterested a little bit and just sort of kept it moving. But then I I, I always... If there's a backstory, I always try to find a podcast. Uh, obviously, we're doing a podcast. I love podcasts. I came across a really, really good podcast called Believing the Bazaar, The Exorcism of Roland Doe, which is dated August 17th, 2021. They really do a really good job of covering all the details of the story. They do it very quickly, too. They they don't waste time, like kind of like I'm doing right now. And so... <laughs> So give it a listen. Um, But then after that, I did some more reading. And it turns out that there are a ton, I mean, significant parallels between the real life story, Exorcism of Roland Doe, and uh, the novel adaptation, and then ultimately the screenplay, the movie of The Exorcist. So um, some really key uh, parallels. There's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram there. I was wrong. I, I just didn't, I wasn't doing my research the right way. And I was just sort of sitting around, messing around, not 
really pay much attention either. So. You're too hard on yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I, you know, Chris and I both have families. We're, we both work full time. We we do a lot of things other than the podcast, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was also watching. Uh, I was watching one of the basketball games at the same time that I was typing up notes. So my my mind and brain were in five thousand places. So, all right, guys, we gave you a little synopsis uh, in the last episode. Chris, we won't give him a synopsis this time. What do you see as if you had to maybe organize them in terms of like most obvious? To least obvious. What do you see as the most obvious themes in The Exorcist? I think there's a lot of overlap with some of our previous episodes with possession and exorcism, whether it's, you know, the exorcisms of Emily Rose or The Willing, you know, nature of evil, possession, the nature of religion, definitely the tension between science and faith. So I think those are probably the top three ones that came to my mind. Okay. And there are a couple of other themes that I wanted to explore that I think there's some subtext about it. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. All right. So let's dive in right there. Take it away. <laughs> yeah. So you want to start with the obvious ones or the non-obvious No, let's ones? do the non-obvious ones. And then we'll okay. sort of work, on, we'll work backwards from there. I think the first one is like the relationship between parent and child. Ooh, okay. Uh, the re- relationship of nature of family. Because okay. um, there's like, Damien, Karis, and Reagan McNeil, they have parallel family structure. Okay. And so they have a really tight relationship with their moms. And then they have an absent dad. Yeah. And then it was interesting because, you know, you know, priests are literally called are literally dressed as father. Right. Yeah. So I was I wasn't sure what to what to make of that. I think even Pazuzu, I think they, they almost hint at least from my interpretation, they they suggest that Pazuzu is is a masculine entity. Yeah. And so just by the way, the homophobic language he uses, the over-sexual nature of what he says. And so, yeah, what do you think, Will? I think it's a good point, for sure. I have sort of in my in my notes some ideas about, like, especially when you get to the ending of the movie, just reflecting on what is this movie about? What does the movie deal with? I almost feel like in some ways the the movie, without saying it, it doesn't ever come out right and say it explicitly, but it, it sort of seems to insinuate that apart from like strong father figures or male figures that families and individuals suffer. Like I, I sort of had that, that understanding from watching it. And so I, I think the parent-child relationship is obviously there. We have, yeah. uh, especially Reagan, who we don't know what kind of relationship she has with her dad. We know that Chris McNeil and her husband are estranged. We know that while all of this is taking place, he's not only like living elsewhere, he's like unavailable. You know, he's on a yacht in, in the Mediterranean, wherever he is, right. Unable to be, you know, reached by, I guess, phone or maybe telegram at that point. You know, we're talking about a 50 year old movie. Um, So it, it almost felt like the movie dealt with Reagan's dad as this sort of absent entity. Just, yeah there in theory, but not really there in reality. You have Karis's relationship with his mom, which is actually, I, I feel like a pretty poignant portion of the movie because it, it sort of seems to be what, what highlights his struggle with faith almost. Almost like this, you know, his mom is this, uh, she's an, you know, an elderly woman who lives alone in New York and um, she's suffering with her health. Ultimately she dies. And it almost it almost has this sort of, subtext, sub theme, some sub idea that, you know, 
or ask the question, why, why do the innocent suffer? I mean, by all appearances, she's a, an innocent party in all of this. And yet she's, she suffers in her own ways that lead to Karis's struggle. So I, I, I think you're right, man. I think there's, there's definitely some conversation the movie is having about families, parent-child relationships, um, both good and bad. No, I think that's good. I think a related theme would also then be just like the nature of masculinity. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So like, it, it seems like, you know, with the lack of male figures in some of these figures' lives and impact it has on them, you know, Karis doesn't want to be a father anymore, right? right. And just the nature of his role as a psychiatrist and as a priest to his colleagues, his patients who are also having these crises of faith, the lack of father figures in their lives almost leaves them uh, impotent. Sure. Uh, yeah, it, it causes like havoc. It invites like evil spirits to come like Pazuzu. Yeah, and, and I thought there was like this really interesting dichotomy between Lancaster Marin when he comes out at the end and Damien Karras, because it almost seems like Karras looks up to yeah. Marin as a father figure. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and when Marin dies, when he sees that he has a heart attack, it seems like he's going through that guilt all over again. He just let another parent figure die Yeah, with his impotency, like um, with his lack of action. So so there's a, there's a part of the novel where that, that implication is maybe detailed a little bit more strongly. To where you get the sense that Karis knows who Marin is long before Marin shows up at the house. And so the movie doesn't necessarily play that out. I, I think Marin's on screen maybe 12, 13 minutes before you know, he dies. And so there, there's just not enough time to sort of develop that relational arc for those two. But the book does a really good job of picking up on that. Yeah, it, it's like, it's interesting because there's there's also instances, you know, when they are doing the exorcism, you know, Karis is like, he's like stymie. He's like completely shocked by what's going mm. on. And, you know, he keeps telling, you know, Karis to proceed to do the call and response. And he has to resort with his familial name. You know, he, he's, you know, he starts with Father Karis, Father Karis, and he says Damien. Yeah. And, you know, there there is like that warm, familiar tone that comes when you do go by your first person name yeah so it's almost like uh when kids get in trouble they get called by all their names you know yeah uh, yeah you know they get called by their legal name yeah <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I, I think you're right it's it's an interesting movie man it, unlike so many other possession movies exorcism movies that explain the reason or the rationale for possession as being you know the individual was so devout or they were you know they were pure in heart, this kind of thing. The Exorcist doesn't really take that angle. In fact, it, it, if anything, it, it's sort of the antithesis of that, where Chris and Reagan McNeil are sort of irreligious. They don't have a, a, a necessarily a strong faith belief or faith system. Maybe at best they're agnostic, if that. And so it's interesting that through the course of the movie, Chris McNeil goes from not understanding what religion has to do with any of this to now sort of depending on a father figure like Karis to take care of them. And obviously to take care of them would be to, to, you know, proceed with the exorcism and cast out the demons. But in that sense, they're looking to quote a father figure to bring protection, bring safety, yeah. expel the the danger, right. That that's threatening them all. Yeah. 
they like hobbled together this, you know, this makeshift nuclear family with grandpa, they do. with uh, mom, dad, Reagan, and try to kick out the squatter named Pazuzu. They do. And, um, and it's, yeah. it's interesting, again, in the novel, there's a little bit of sexual tension, romantic tension between Chris McNeil and Father Karras as you get further in. Oh. And so, like, there, yeah. there are instances where she notices uh, just how strong he is. And, like, so there's these little, little small, like, breadcrumbs on a trail, these little details in the novel that sort of lead you down the path of, are these two individuals really looking for covering of a father figure, a husband type figure, you know, obviously it's forbidden fruit given that Karis is a, uh, you know, Roman Catholic priest, but there's some of that is, is definitely in woven into the narrative of the story. It doesn't quite translate in, into the movie because, you know, the movie would be six hours long, but Chris, I like it. I like it. That's, that's a good, it's a really good starting point. Yeah. Cause you know, there are other scenes too, man. You know, he's asked by the the man who who on the plat subway platform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, father, can you help me? Can you give me a buck or something like that? Yeah. And so he's like completely rejecting that father role. And visually, you know, you know, he gets rid of the garbs. He's not wearing yeah. uh, the priestly garbs. You know, for half the movie. Yeah. He's like, you know, wearing his uh, his gym clothes, his uh, running gear. Yeah. It's also interesting just the fact that. There are a couple of scenes with uh, even Kinderman comparing him to like Paul Newman. Yeah. No, no. Salminio. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like these masculine figures and uh, saying he looks like a boxer. And so Karis, you know, ultimately embraces his father role at the end of the movie by letting the demon come into him. Yeah. And he like throws himself out the window, which um, I'll just drop here. It's total off tangent, but. One of my favorite words in the English dictionary is defenestration, okay, which literally means to throw a person out the window. Oh gosh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny, dude. This is like, how did this word even like come to exist? I've never been able to use it in a sentence, thank God. But um, yeah, yeah. We're gonna have to figure out a way, a context for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Karis dies via self-defenestration but there you go. There you <laughs> yeah go. so so we're definitely going to talk about the ending um here in a little bit because I, there's probably a thousand questions we can ask and try and answer about it something inter- you mentioned the uh the homeless guy in the train station that voice that character comes back up when he meets reagan the first time and he sees her possessed state and yeah. so Reagan is going through these different voices, these different iterations of, of people, right? And uh, one of those is the the homeless guy on in the train station, and so I, I think it catches Karis by surprise. So here's a question, okay? This is just purely conjecture, because that's all I've got, okay? So do you see the? You mentioned that Karis, for the most part, really isn't in his, you know priestly garb right there's a couple of scenes where he's you know leading mass at the end obviously um with the exorcism he he puts on the vestments right but by and large he's not dressed in in that way he's normally dressed down do you see that as being visually symbolic of that tension he he experiences as you know do i believe do i not believe do i want to be a father or do i not want to be a you know a father a priest um, do you see that as as being a visual representation of that conflict? 
Yeah, I think so. You know, even when he meets Chris McNeil for the first time, she's shocked because, you know, first she's um, kind of abrasive. She thinks this stranger is bothering her. Yeah. And uh, she was like, oh, I didn't realize uh, you'd be in regular clothes. I also think there's um maybe this is more bordering on just the nature of faith. You know, after his first time encountering Reagan, the camera shifts. You know, it's usually pretty static. It doesn't really move. Right. But as he's coming out, it's uh the camera is now handheld, so it's really shaky. And so as he's coming down the stairs, it's you know, it's really unstable. So it, it kind of indicates that this this guy is having a, a some sort of crisis. You know, whether it's it could be faith, but it could also be just the fact that he he wants to leave religion and you know, maybe the subject says he doesn't want to be like a father figure. And so he's like it, it really hints at his uh the inner conflict. I, I appreciate that. I love it. I guess the question then is, do you see Karis's crisis of faith, this internal conflict, as being a, a, like an existential crisis where, you know, it it's like uh, catastrophic for him potentially to to do one, make one decision or another, or do you see it as more indicative of maybe some of the questions that we all ask, right? For those of us who hold on to faith. There are natural questions that come up that sometimes we feel like we can't ask or feel like we have to suppress because, you know, the faith systems that we align with sometimes don't afford us that opportunity, right? Um, yeah. The rigidity of the system, that kind of thing. Do you see it as a genuine existential crisis of faith, crisis of faith or do you see it more as here's a guy with a thousand questions that maybe needs? I thought there was a really interesting line, you know, when he was talking about his credentials. I think it was with Chris McNeil, but, you know, he was talking about the church sent him to Harvard Med School, yeah, and they helped pay for him to go to, you know, do his internship at Bellevue Hospital in New York, uh, in New York City, yep. the oldest hospital in America, and probably did his specialization training at Johns Hopkins. And so, it, it's interesting because it seems like there's a possibility that he relied on the church because he had no father figure and they were poor. It also seems like he might not have really had an opportunity to think about his life choices sure. until recently. He could also have been really discouraged just from the nature of the work he was doing. He he really let other people's crises get to him too, which is, you know, which is natural as a, a provider. And so, sure. yeah, I, I, th- I think it is a genuine Christ, crisis of faith. These different things are like uh, intersecting and, you know, kind of overwhelming him at the same time. Mm. So yeah, I just the thought running through my head as you were saying this, right? The possibility of him joining the priesthood as a response to, let's say, not having a father figure or not having the means to provide for himself or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it almost reads like a, uh, like a trauma response, like oh, his pursuit yeah. of, of uh, vocational ministry was more due to trauma than any sort of, you know, willful decision on him, you know, on his own, on his own part. Yeah. Which I, I realize, you know, n- none of us are, there's no such thing as influencing factor, right? We all have in- influencing factors that help sort of determine what we decide, you know, in, in different ways. But it almost feels like there's, there might be some trauma response here based on what, yeah. what you've said, um, which, yeah. which, I suppose would be a, a good starting point. It's not a great starting point. I'm not saying that, but for him, it, it was a good starting point to get into the field. But then over time, sort of 
that motivation waned because there wasn't anything sort of undergirding what was going on. And so yeah, it almost feels like when the rug is pulled out from under you at some point, what what ground are you standing on? For him, it, it seems like it was, you know, shaky ground at best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like, you know, he, you know he's obviously wrecked with a lot of guilt, you know, because of his mom's death. Also seems like the uncle hints that, you know, he feels a lot of regret about his career choices too. Sure. You know, he, he mentions like, hey, if you if you weren't a priest, you could have been like a really, really rich psychiatrist yeah. on Park Ave, you yeah. know, making making lots and lots of money. Yeah. And so um, I felt that because, you know, as someone who's who, who's in ministry, I'm like, what the hell am I doing with my life? <laughs> I, I feel that having yeah. come out of 10 years of ministry and there's the inevitable like you sit down and you just – once the dust settles and you're like, <laughs> what the hell just happened? Yeah. You know, and you feel, and I'll be honest, like I, I know that, you know, vocational ministry is a, there's a calling attached to it. And I get that I'm not downplaying that or minimizing it, but there is definitely a, a human part of us that sits back and just wonders, yeah. you know, the what if, the what if statements, the, you know, if I could, you know, choose my ideal life, would it, would I make the same choices? Would I go down the same roads? Would I, you know, whatever it is. So I, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely feel that, you know, ministry yeah. is uh there's definitely for the vast majority of us, there's definitely not a vow of poverty, but there's, there's definitely the reality of poverty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Us, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I definitely felt what he said there and, and you know, the, the brother or the uncle rather lays it on thick. He's like, you know, She's not in, in a private hospital. Who's got the money for that? Do you? Yeah. Almost like this. If you had done something different, yeah, we could be avoiding all of this, right? She would. She would be. Yeah. She would have better care. She might even be alive. Um, and it almost feels like throughout the course of the movie, and and make no mistake, guys. Okay, Jason Miller in this role is fantastic. He plays this, kills it. Oh man, he plays this brooding, dark hopeful, doubtful, angsty priest to perfection. Okay. But it almost feels like he's being overtaken by that, by that guilt, by that grief. And if not for the last like 90 seconds of the movie, you almost ask yourself, well, why isn't this dude possessed? Like why the 12 year old girl? Why not father Karis? Like it would make way more sense. This guy's angry. He's bitter. He's hurt, right? He's got all this, He's wrestling with all these questions like Reagan's just this innocent kid who just, you know, played with the Ouija board and that was it. Guys, it always starts with a Ouija board. Always. Oh, man. I, I want to say it's a horror movie trope. It's become that. But so we have this this concept of families and parent-child relationship. We have the struggle of sort of the inner conflict of faith. Are there other subtexts that you mentioned that you that you feel like, hey, this movie sort of pokes around at this? I'm not sure how other people might have perceived it, but, you know, there's always, there was this idea of, you know, sexual repression in the movie. You know, there's some sexual tension perhaps that's hinted at between Chris McNeil and Burke Dennings. And, you know, it's interesting that Pazuzu murders Burke Dennings, you know, throws him out the window. So as to almost like prevent Chris McNeil and Burke Dennings from, you know, shacking it up perhaps, or at least punishing birth Dennings. And so, you know, so as, you know, priests, you know, take, take a vow of celibacy. So 
they can't have sex and they have to like turn down romance so it was, it, it was interesting because you know pazuzu is you know very sexual says really god awful things. things yeah yeah very homophobic there's some disturbing scenes where it flashes you know the doctors yeah. and so not really sh- sure what the director was hinting at but you know it's interesting because you know if you compare how Burke Dennings dies and just the relationship he had with Chris McNeil and the almost like um you know when Karis killed dies by su- is it suicide or heroic I sacrifice i never knew the distinction i but i like heroic sacrifice you like heroic I sacrifice do, i do i yeah i'm partial to it yeah it it, it almost seems like i mean this is just kind of like a out there take on it but can't embrace just his sexuality and you know he just chooses to die that's fair i mean like it an out there interpretation of like throwing himself out the window is like that could be like seen as like almost like metaphoric ejaculation or yeah even like his dream with his mom it seems really freudian too you know yeah um just like the relationship with he has with his mom it's very intimate and how uh pazuzu hijacks that yeah the interposition of like his mom's face and pazuzu's face yeah so i thought that was interesting this goes back to you know some of my uh college english classes you know where professors were just like there's sex sure. everywhere. <laughs> this bird flying. I mean, this confetti is sex. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's not so out of place, though. I mean, so maybe some context, right? The novel actually yeah. dispels any hint of any romantic relationship between Dennings and McNeil, Chris McNeil. Yeah. So, you know, w- William Peter Blatty's really careful about detailing this platonic sort of very intimate friendship between them. That's it. And then on the other side, I mentioned it earlier that he he hints at this sort of sexual tension between Chris McNeil and Damien Karras. The movie, I don't think, does a great job of balancing that tension um, in either direction. So you have like Reagan's statements about you're going to marry Burke Dennings. And she's like, well, I love pizza, but I'm not going to marry a pizza. It's sort of this comedic dismissal. And then there's there's really no tension between Chris McNeil and Karis in the movie, whereas the book really does a good job of that. And a lot of the sexual tension and, and sexual references in the novel come by way of like these really graphic descriptions of like black mass, what yeah. what the desecrations in the in the church are, what they symbolize what they mean, um, even to the degree where some of Reagan's outbursts, the sexual outbursts, the sexual language in the movie is sort of hinted at comedically, at least at first. And then it has the shock value in the, in the novel. Some of that is explained very well. And so I think the difference between the two, if you know, the, the book is scary, I don't think it was necessarily a horror book. I think it was more a thriller of yeah. sorts, a mystery thriller of sorts. Whereas I think the movie took the horror elements in the book and condensed them into a two hour horror movie. Um, yeah. And so I think some of that is lost. Some of the other details get lost in translation from book to movie, but you know, so I, I hear what you're saying. I think it's, it would be, it's super easy to see. There's some underlying sexual tension that's pervasive throughout the movie. You know um, I think what's shocking. We talked about this before, Movies in the 70s, man, they, they like, they sexualize everybody. 
doesn't matter who yeah. they are. Doesn't matter how old they are, right? I mean, yeah, Reagan is is twelve in in the movie. She's fourteen in real life, Linda Blair, but that's still a kid. And so, would it be shocking if it were an adult in that role? For sure. Is it super uncomfortable to watch it uh, a preteen in that role? Hell yeah! Like, yeah, it leaves you yeah. grossed out <laughs> yeah. as it should. I mean, uh, you know, Taxi Driver came out same period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. and you know, Jodie Foster's character. Yeah. Is it Jodie Foster? Jodie Foster, yep. Or is it? Yeah, yeah. Jodie Foster. Or is it Michelle Pfeiffer? It was Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. She was yeah, also yeah. she was also twelve or thirteen years old when the movie. Came yeah, out. yeah. And she she has like really strange relationships. You know, is Travis Bickle who's like obsessed with her and yeah. um her pimp played by Harvey Keitel. And so this period is really really hyper focused on masculinity, uh, sexuality, and just how a lot of men don't really have the withal to do anything it's never resolved for them either. And so, so would you say, put you on the spot, would you say then that knowing, knowing the context of, of let's say seventies movies in general, now sort of bring it back into the, the view of the, the exorcist. Would you say that there's possibly a, a pro patriarchy stance in this movie? Oof. I mean, you have the absent fathers, right? You have yeah. the substitute father figures. You have um, even the concept of, you know, God dispelling Satan there. There's definitely this like, battle and tug of war and may the strongest man win kind of kind of thing yeah i don't think he i don't think william freaking meant to okay but i think it is a pro patriarchy movie because okay. you know one of you know that last scene one of the last scenes in the movie reagan has zero recollection of everything that happened right and she sees the the priest caller and she maybe it's a trauma response but there's some something within her her muscles just force her to jump and hug Father dire and so, yeah, I, I think it's trying to say something about maybe not so much patriarchy, which it ultimately does, but it, it does say, say something to men who feel impotent, who feel lost, that, you know, whatever you do, perhaps, like, it, it, you will have an impact on someone at the end. Interesting. The, the patriarchy thought just sort of popped into my head as we were talking. So I don't know that I have a thought beyond what you shared. If you if you take the movie in the direction of sort of what I mentioned earlier that, you know, families without a stable father figure, they, you know, they're bound for doom, right? Like that's just what their destiny is. Well, then it would obviously be you, you would have no choice but to end up with a pro-patriarchy stance because that's where you start, right? That, yeah. you know, women and children left left to their own devices are, are incapable or helpless, you know, in danger, vulnerable, yeah. that kind of thing. I, I don't like that message. Uh, there's a there's I really don't. Um, I think it can be culturally sort of tone deaf a little bit. Yeah, I think it can be incredibly insensitive <laughs> as well. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, whatever whatever my views on patriarchy are, which I'm not pro patriarchy. You know, I, I think <laughs> the movie, if that's the, if there was a possibility of intent there to to sort of make that claim, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that statement. Yeah. Aside from that, right. Let's dive into the ending. Yeah. Let's dive in. All right. So I have, so here's an interesting thought. When Karis first meets Reagan in her possessed state, she's strapped to the bed. It's the middle of the day, light pouring in, right? He, she says something to the effect of, it's a wonderful day for an exorcism. And then he responds, well, wouldn't that drive you out? And I never quite grasped until this most recent watch. Her response the demon's response was, it would bring you and us together. 
And she's, and so Kara says, do you mean you and Reagan? And the demon says, no, me and you. Oh, wow. I didn't catch that. I never caught it as like a foreshadowing of, Hey, you know, with an hour to spare in the movie, the, the demon is already predicting what the end is going to be. We already know what's going to happen. Even if, you know, obviously if we're attentive to it in those ways. And so when I, when I finally watched it again, I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. This end has already been set up. Like the demon knows what's going to happen here. Right. And so you get to the end where Marin dies, Kara starts, you know, going Mike Tyson on, on everybody. Right. <laughs> First on, on, on Marin's chest, like, you know, trying to get his heart started, obviously can't do it. Then he just starts wailing on, you know, Reagan, you know, possess, demon possessed Reagan. And uh, finally he realizes this, maybe the futility of his, of his actions. Right that it's yeah. sort of hopeless. And so he finally says, take me, come into me, right? There's this transfer of spiritual energy, right? Could be sexual. <laughs> I mean, it could, it could. Like, if if that is an underlying idea, it really could be, you know? Yeah. And then there's this very brief tug of war between demon and Karis, right? Demon and human. Karis wins out by throwing himself out the bedroom windows, falls down the, the steps on M street and dies. What do you think of that ending? Dude, it's so loaded. I think you, you kind of suggested it before, just the, the nature of possession and William freaking cut out a scene chosen in the uh, alternate director's cut. Yep. I forgot the exact language, but it was pretty much saying, you know, Pazuzu chose to possess uh, Reagan, you know, not so much, to harm Reagan, but to discourage the people around Reagan, you know, to prevent them from feeling capable or feeling worthy of God's love. It's like, you know, people get discouraged, people lose their credibility. You know, these doctors don't know what they're doing. Yet they become like, they almost become emasculated. You know, these guys who are like, you know, just just experts in their fields. Yeah. And so Karis also hits rock bottom in just terms of hope his understanding of the world and, you know, everything is like turned upside down and, you know, he ultimately chooses to do something and take action. And so it's, it's almost like he grabs his faith back, which, um, you know, it's kind of hinted at towards the end of the movie when, uh, Holly Dyer performs the last rites on him. So, you know, you can also think about just the nature of faith. Do you lose it? Do you ever lose it? If you lose it, do you gain it back? I'm not sure if Karis ever lost his faith, even though he felt that way, because there was another scene, you know, when he, you know, he sprays Reagan with holy water and, you know, what he says, you know, I tricked Reagan because I, it's not actually blessed water, but maybe something isn't holy just because you verbally say it is. Sure. It's just holy by the fact in and of itself. Sure. But yeah. What do you think, man? Uh, so off the bat, I don't think he lost his faith. I think he yeah. wrestled with his faith for sure. And I think he grabbed hold of it at the very end. You know, we talked about this a little bit when we did the exorcism of Emily Rose that so often possession movies take this angle. Possession exists and demons exist as a way to show that or prove the existence of God. I really don't like that. <laughs> just as a as like a life principle i i don't like that evil exists or that we 
rationalize evil as being this, see, this is incontrovertible proof that God exists. Because if God doesn't exist, how could something so awful and bad exist, right, in the world? There has to be an equal balancing force, something like that. I hate that, truly. But I understand from a horror movie perspective why that why that is, okay? So yeah. I, I feel like I don't think Karis lost his faith. I think the interactions with Reagan, you know, as possessed, maybe accomplished what the goal was to prove God's existence. And where I, I felt like maybe the movie wrestles with like science versus religion, right? Secular versus religious, that kind of thing. I think ultimately the movie ends up with this answer of, you know, maybe Christianity is the only thing that can save us. You know, at the end of the day, when medicine fails, that kind of thing. I don't know. There's a part of me that feels like Karis is a little bit of a Jesus figure. Now, I realize that might oh, be yeah. an out there take, but this sense of, you know, you asked if if Karis at the end, if that was suicide or heroic sacrifice, you know, I, I definitely lean towards heroic sacrifice, if only because I view Karis as this, in that moment, as a Christ figure that gives himself up for, you know, someone else. Right. And so for me that that's, is, is there suicide involved? Well, obviously Karis knows what his end is going to be. And yet he doesn't shy away from taking the requisite actions to preserve someone else. So I, I sort of see it in that light. You know, really freaking said something interesting because, you know, I don't think he's a Christian. And so he said, I'm a believer. I'm just approximating what he said, you know, but I, I believe in this movie, you know, yeah. Um, so comparing it to the exorcism of Emily Rose, where there's like an explicit scene featuring, you know, divine power uh, to Virgin Mary. We don't really get that in this movie. No, we don't. And so it doesn't necessarily, I think, prove the existence of God, but it does prove that Karis believes in something. Sure. And so whether it's in his own self, in his own self, as, as just as a man, as a human being or just in some kind of system, it does lend support that, you know, what he did was, it, it showed that, you know, he regained his belief in something. And what that ultimately is, we don't know. I, I think there's a, I don't remember the exact line. When Karis and, and Marin are, are talking on the stairs, after he initiated, you know, as they're prepping for, for the exorcism, this might've actually even been just in the director's cut in the, uh, you know, version you've never seen there. There's a conversation. I think I've, if I remember right, um, Karis asks Marin, you know, what, why does possession, like, why does this stuff happen? The, essentially the question is, you know, why, why is there evil in the world almost like a variation of that? And Marin says something to the effect of like the point of all of this is so that we lose hope, right? So that we despair. Um, he talks about like, we start to see ourselves as, you know, incapable of God, of God's love. Right. Um, and it, it, if that is left sort of unchecked, we ultimately reject the possibility that, you know, God could ever care for us or love us. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I, I think yeah. in, you know, in suffering, there's a, a a part of us that wants to give up hope, right? And and it almost feels as if as if it's easier to give up hope. Like God can't possibly love me, so why hold on? You know, I just realized it might be obvious to other people, but you know, God is sort of an Aspen's father in this movie he too. He really is. He's only referenced yeah. Indirectly. And so, 
Pazuzu is, you know, a spirit racking, you know, wreaking havoc on Reagan. Yeah, for Damien, his lack of faith is is like a demon wrecking uh, havoc on him. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see those two parallels. And so here's a random question. Random question. As you said that, right? The only uh, so God is sort of absent in the film. The only spiritual being we see in any real sense is Pazuzu, right? We see first see the statue, the small statue, the large statue. We see, you know, iterations of him. We obviously see him possessing Reagan. Is it to say that ultimately we are representatives of God and therefore are the vehicles by which he moves? Is that a an out-of-pocket statement to say? Um, I mean, I'm not sure that the movie's getting it. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think there's something to say about, you know, to bring up the context of this, you know, new Hollywood 70s movies again, you know, you know, with postmodernism, people feel like they can't beat any kind of system. Sure. And there's no higher power backing them up. It almost seems like the director is saying, you know, the higher power is the actions we take. Sure. The belief we have in ourselves, the good things that we do. Sure. Um, So I, I, I think that's definitely there. This is also random, but you know, I was super confused for a while because I swore that Pazuzu is never actually explicitly named in this movie, right? Might be just in the books and movie three or movie maybe or movie two. Yeah, second movie is oh yeah. Now I'm ha- I'm having one of those like Mandela effect. Like, how did he <laughs> yeah. come to that name? Yeah. Wait, I feel like they were looking at a book at one point and the the, the pictograph showed the demon with the name oh, in it. Guys, this I'll might the, check. this might be like the genie movie with Sinbad that doesn't exist in real life. <laughs> yeah. I have a whole thing in my head about how we came to this name and it might not be true. Yeah, I'll to double check. That's wild. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, we, we named our Pazuzu the whole time, but... You can't see us on camera or, or through the audience. Yeah. Like, we're just staring into the void at the moment. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> I don't know how we got there. How we got the, I know we got the name from somewhere. Yeah. But I don't exactly remember how or when or where. Yeah. Huh. They definitely named the, the demon in the second movie. Guys, the second movie was so bad. So bad. Like the Exorcist has like an eight point one or an eight point two rating on IMDb, and the Exorcist two has like a three point five, three point six. <laughs> That's it's so sad. Terrible. So, but if if all the second movie gave us was the name of the demon, well then I guess it's an enduring movie. It probably belongs up there in the annals of the Hall of Fame of yeah bad scary. There's movies. some cool shots in the movie. I was looking, I was watching it through YouTube, and uh, some of the cinematography is really a, pretty stunning. In the second movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's an interesting concept. Like, yeah. as a concept, it it's pretty fascinating. In execution, it was not. Terrible. It, it was really bad. Yeah. Everything that made the first movie the first movie was dismissed and discarded in the second one. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so let's segue away from The Exorcist into our cool down discussion. Okay. So Chris, did you know that there are movie posters for the new exorcist coming out in October and it looks terrifying? Oh, so like one of the ones I saw was it's a, it's a really dark picture and it's a staircase, like an L shaped staircase. And Reagan is coming down in the spider walk 
down that staircase and the makeup in looks terrific. Oh. Do you see that? Oh, oh I see it. You oh, see that it? is Oh my gosh, that is terrifying. Guys, if the movie is even a third of what this this poster is, it should be great. Uh I have I have hopes. I don't know if they're high hopes or low hopes, but I have hopes for this one. It will be something. It will either be terrific or it won't be. Yeah. Cuz some of the Halloween movie, it's the same team that remade rebooted I Halloween. Know. So I know. I know the first one was pretty good. The concept was really interesting. First one was really and good. Then... All right, guys, we're we're about an hour. We're always an hour in by the time we get done. I've really appreciated this conversation. It you know it's it sort of highlights the best of what our intention here at the Har- at the Har Lab is is to say, hey, there there are some maybe some concepts, some themes, some ideas in these movies that take a little while to sort of pick up on. Right, maybe you're not going to catch it in the first viewing or the first few viewings, but as you go, as you watch it, as you become familiar with the movie, you start to pick up on some things. I feel like we had a good discussion on some themes, and it, it does adjust the way you watch the movie again to say, "Oh man, like I really see this." You know, maybe that's confirmation yeah. bias, or you know, I really don't see that. Like I don't know what they were watching, but. If you, don't, if you don't see it, you need to watch it again. You do need to see watch it. it again. You need to watch it as many times as it takes to agree with us. It's like, <laughs> until you, you say, you know, yeah, Karis jumping out of the window. Yeah, that's totally evocative of ejaculation. Oh, man. Yeah, until listen, that happens. Listen, guys, it's been it's been a great ride. Two episodes, our first two-parter. We have to do part two of The Wailing. Um, it's in my queue again to watch, so... I'm hopeful we can uh, we can jump into part two here in the cu- next couple of weeks. But next yeah. week, Chris, which uh, which episode are we doing? Is it we are Cabin doing in the Woods? Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, Cabin in the Woods. I'm halfway through We're... it. I like it so far. I think it's pre Thor, Crimson Hemsworth. It right? is. I think it's 2000. Yeah, yeah it's either pre Thor or just right after. Yeah. Thor. Um, he definitely wasn't the star that he is now. That's yeah. for sure. It's an it's an interesting take. On a horror movie, I, I kind of like it so far. So yeah, it's it, it's interesting how they. Well, not going to spoil it. Go watch it. <laughs> Go watch it, guys. We enhance your viewing experience, not replace it. That is our our goal, guys. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we will see you next week. Remember, we're streaming all over the place: Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and Apple Podcasts iHeartRadio, Pandora, Amazon Music. Like, subscribe, follow, do all the things. Leave us a five-star review. Um, We're pushing 30 reviews on Spotify right now, which is great, which means our our podcast is picking up some steam. And um, yeah, follow us on the socials, guys. Twitter at Pod, Instagram Pod, Facebook the Lab, and uh, email us. If you got questions, appreciate what we're doing. Uh, Complaint department will just send you right to spam. But email us at (laughs) horrorlabpod at gmail.com. Guys, we will catch you next week. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you then. Stay safe, everybody.